in the interviewer's chair is a, a friend of us all, Mr. Gary Guestlist. And our very special guest, one of the great rhythm guitarists, Andrew Innes. Thank you all for coming. Um, First of all, I'd just like to say we've dedicated this evening's gathering to the memories of Denise Johnson, Andrew Weatherall, and Throbert Young, Robert, and... um, we hold them all in our in our hearts and memories. So um, let's hope it's Roger going to be a good Hawkins night. As well. Sorry, Roger Hawkins. John. Roger Hawkins yeah. has passed away yeah. since. <sighs> Roger Hawkins, the drummer, drummer on this album. Uh, Tom Dowd since passed yeah. away. Wayne, Jack the trumpet player. Oh, <laughs> <cast>. <laughs> you do your research and then you find out that all these people <laughs> passed away. <laughs> So I'll soon be the only one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, let's hope it's going to be a great evening. Um, first of all, I'd like to talk about um, post Screamadelica. Right. You've uh, you've won the Mercury Award. Yes, we've won the prize. You've uh, had fantastic critical acclaim. We've been in tour for about. A year, I think. A year you saw the album. A wonderful time touring the world and you know doing all we had ever wanted to do. You finally got the acclaim. What you've been? The acclaim, and we were having great gigs. If if you went any of those Screamadelica gigs, they were really excited. And and you know we tried to change things about, and we'd play, and then we'd have DJs after to try and make it more like you know a club because it was very club in so we, it wasn't just the the band would come on and then everyone went home we'd hire venues where Alex Patterson and Andrew Weatherall would would play after mm-hmm. us to you know try and make it more of a you know a club vibe it wasn't just a rock and roll and it really it took you all over the world so it took us all over the world and it's amazing we had you know the great time you then didn't we, like Japan did you not, not the first time. <laughs> Too expensive. Didn't like the food. That's what I read. I like it now. <laughs> you know, I've got to go there in two weeks' time, so... I grew into Japan. you got a great reception It's, it's very, Japan. very difficult, because I don't know if anyone's been to Japan, but it's, it's like going to Mars or something, and, and you really... You know, really struggled with the culture shock and, you know, being us in a foreign place is, you know, being in primal scream, it tends to attract trouble rather than we cause trouble. We we attract it wherever we go. And, yeah, we even attracted it in Japan, believe it or not. <laughs> and, it's hard yeah. to get into trouble in Japan. It's I not. can imagine, does it not? <laughs> <laughs> so you've 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 had the acclaim, you've had the tours, yep. you've um, yes, yes, and you've yes. got some. Everything's everything's great. Everything's brilliant. Yeah, and we get back. Then, we get back home, 
you've got the and difficult follow-up. No, no. Oh, no, sorry, no, no. no get back you... home and McGee goes, where's the next album? Okay. To which the, the reply was, what, what next album? <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? We just finished the last one. He goes, no, that was a year and a half ago. We need another one now because he was, I think he was doing his Sony deal and he needed... He needed a record. He needed a backup. Yes. Which is... We had no... You know, because Screamadelica was actually... You know, it took... It was was made over two years and it was a lot of, you know, work in those two years to make that record. So when you're suddenly faced with, well, we need ten more songs and we need it in the next month and it wasn't forthcoming. Coming. And then we made the, the classic error of we'll write it in the studio. But before that, you, you did the Dixie Narco EP, didn't you? That, you're probably that not. was after, after Screamer Scream of Delica. That was in between. In the end of 91. Mm. We went to Memphis. So that was the first time you'd been to Arden yes. Studios? Yeah, yeah. And that was just basically like Jolly. We'd had some success, so instead of recording, like we made a lot of Screamadelica in a, a place, it was an advert in the back of the Melody Maker that said London's cheapest 24 track. And being Creation Records, that's where you get dispatched to. <laughs> and the saving grace of London's cheapest 24 track was it had this brilliant engineer called Brian O'Shaughnessy, who it was really good, which is why Loaded sounds, it's such a warm, good-sounding record because he was very good at his craft. But it was in a shed in Walthamstow <laughs> at the end. And this is before Walthamstow became Walthamstow as it is now and it cost loads of money to live there. It was the end of the Victoria line <laughs> in a shed. And so after spending a year there, we thought, oh, we've got some money, we'll go broaden our horizons and we went decided, I don't know who his idea the first time we got to Memphis was but we whether all agreed Hugo agreed we'd all decamp to Memphis to make a record. So it was Andrew Weatherall and Hugo Nicholson. Nicholson and Oslot and then Douglas Hart came with a camera as well which right. is why there's some film of it as well. So, But you, you were delving into that southern soul sound even then weren't you? Well I think it was just a f- you know, a fascination with anything because all the the music we all like, whether it's rockabilly or soul, and it's all come out of that bit of the south of America. You know, so I don't know who the genius idea was to go there, but we all decamped to Memphis, and then we found out that Memphis had been shut down about fifteen years before we got there. <laughs> It wasn't the Memphis that you thought it, it was, was going to we be. We were expecting, you know, soul bands and blues artists, and and it was by that time it was just very much post-industrial, and because it's on the Mississippi River, and I think most of the trade, Memphis was there as a staging post between stuff coming down from the north, down the Mississippi from St. Louis and all the cities in the north, and then stuff coming up from New Orleans to service these cities and it, there was no river traffic, there was no nothing good on So you've you did the Dixie Narco EP yes. Screamadelica, the track on the EP wasn't on Screamadelica the album no. 
And it was amazing Memphis. So you, 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 you covered the, the Dennis Wilson track. Yeah, we did that there. And uh, Carry Me Home. Yes. Beautiful track. Yes. You come back to England and you're at the Roundhouse Studios. No, we in were North back London. on tour. Oh, you're back on tour? Yeah, back okay. on tour all that year. And it was at the end of the summer, about September, that we were dispatched to the Roundhouse okay. to make the follow-up. And so you've got the money coming in? Basically, from from yeah, we were the, doing, the sales of Screaming Delicate. Well, no, they, I don't think the money, you know, the big money, but we we were definitely moved up. We moved up, and then we made the same. We made the basic mistake of trying to make a record in the studio as you go along, and it just doesn't work. And it was a combination of factors. We had no ideas. We were tired. We were all in different. Uh, narcotics for best best world and better world and you'd, you know turn up and nothing would happen before 12 o'clock at night to everybody's favourite dealers had turned up and <laughs> and then you start jamming absolute rubbish all night and stop about 8 in the morning how long did this last this for this went period? On, I've no idea about a month I think and the, the other problem was because it was winter you didn't see any daylight, and it, and it was so it's like being on a night shift. And if you don't, I think you need to see some daylight. And so just you get really depressed because you'd you go home at eight in the morning, sleep all day, get up at six o'clock at night, and do it all again. And it's not. It wasn't a, a great part. Gonna, it wasn't. I've been con- really depressed in here. <laughs> it wasn't conducive to. It wasn't conducive to working. No. So the, then, fortunately, somebody came up with a great idea of going on tour to Australia, where, <laughs> where it was summer, and we had about three weeks in Australia, which was great at the end of December that year. This is how I remember it. And then back, which was brilliant because everybody got out, got down to the sea and the sun, and the, you know it was hot. And then we would get back into the roundhouse on January the 1st or the 2nd and it lasted about four days and we just went, this is terrible, this has got to stop. So that was the end of the, the brown house period. <laughs> <laughs> so whose decision was it to go back to, to Memphis? Hmm... And whose decision was it to they, get Tom Dowd? The, the um, right decision to go back to Memphis, I think, was we decided we can't do this in London because it's not healthy. We thought we couldn't do it in New York or Los Angeles because that wouldn't be healthy. So why don't we go to Memphis? At least it's out of the way and all our so-called friends can't find us there. <laughs> That's another story. But whose idea it was we had to get Tom Dowd? We had this on our American record label, Sire, at the time. They had this wonderful man, Joe McEwen. If you, you know, he was an A&R guy and he was the exact opposite of an, what you'd expect American A&R person to be. He was very quietly spoken, very, very knowledgeable, loved soul music. I don't know if, who loves soul music here, but there was a Sam Cooke live LP live at the Harlem. Is it the Square Garden? Square. 
that yeah and Joe McEwen knew about it and he was the one and this is before reissues became an industry and this was one of the first ever re- reissue records he knew the tapes existed of this Sam Cooke record and he went and discovered it and had it had it released and he was a really lovely lovely very gentle man and the same like Simo Stein and the, the other people at Sire were your classic you know Simo was a great character and you know he signed the Ramones he signed Madonna Madonna yeah uh, was Whitney like, Houston Whitney yeah, 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 yeah signed Whitney they sh- yeah Shangri-Las yeah really so Seymour so was exactly what you expected of an American record company guy, just larger than life, great. But Joe was uh, the opposite. So he, you know, but he was very much. You you listened to what he had to say. So I think his idea was toned out. Okay. Right, he said. Get. But simultaneously, whilst you were sort of touring and hanging yeah. out together, you were listening to that. Yes, kind of music yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. weren't you? You were listening to Tom Dow Productions, yeah. you were listening to Charlie Parker, yeah. to John Coltrane, yes. Aretha Well, we listened to a lot of that stuff during Screamadelica, believe it or not. There was a lot of listening to Miles Davis and John Coltrane and bits of that came out in Screamadelica, I think. Mm. So, yeah, we were just broadening. It was a very good time for... You know, being that young and being suddenly being exposed to all this different, and I think that's one of the things that house music gave you was you could listen to stuff. You could listen to anything. It, it, the, yeah, and it wasn't the, a song. That was yeah. to me that was a beautiful house music. It wasn't a song, and I know a lot of people didn't like it because it you know wasn't standard verse chorus, but it's, but that was what excited me about it was it could just be. A loop of a saxophone for six minutes, and you'd you'd like it. Yeah, I think was it. Um, I don't know if it was if it was yourselves or Alan McGee that sent um, Screamadelica to, to Tom O'Dowd. Tom Dowd, and yes, he, he he wasn't sure what he could oh, no, bring he, to the table. No, he just wondered what the hell we were up to. Because yeah. <laughs> I spoke to him, he said, "Why do you want me?" And I started saying, "You know, we like these records." And he went, "Well, I can't make a record." like your last one and you know I said we don't want that right so so you you've offered him the the music that you've done in the past but you've you've pressed on to him that you want to go in a different direction the kind of direction that he's he's capable of doing is that when he he got in touch with the Muscle Shoals yeah, well, people. Yeah, I can't. Again, I can't remember who suggested them, but we knew our bass player and drummer couldn't do that sort of thing. So, this was one of the first times you'd worked with a consistent drummer. Yes, I believe. Yeah, was yeah. it Toby Tobinoff that you had at the yes. time? He was a very good Manchester punk drummer. Didn't he play Nico with Nico? He played. Yeah, him and Henry, the bass player, they played with Nico during the eighties. I don't know if you have you ever read that book songs you don't yeah, yeah which is, <laughs> it's, it's a fantastic book about low level touring in the 80s uh, from a transit van where they're running and stolen credit cards or you know and it's basically all about getting Nico's heroin across the border that's, that's, if you've never read that book yes, it's incredible it's, I would describe it as um, one, one of the it's accurate. Carry, carry on shooting up. 
Clark. Yeah, there's a great <laughs> scene in between John Cooper Clark and Nico, I think, is discussing the, the benefits of whether it's Chinese heroin or Iranian heroin. <laughs> and it's the, the chart is entitled The Connoisseurs. He, he held up two syringes yeah, to yeah. describe which, yeah. which one you like, yeah. the Chinese or the Iranian. Yeah. Sorry, we're getting a bit dark now when it comes <laughs> No, but it's actually a very funny piece on it's the, a really the funny different book, quality. If you can find it. Yeah, it's a really good book. So, uh, so you, you go over to um, to Memphis. You meet up with Tom. No, they came to London. Oh, he came to, to London to initially air. first. That's right. Yeah. Didn't he sent uh, was it? No, Roger, David, and Tom came. The rhythm section came because he yeah. wanted to know Roger. what you were like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we really whether asked. he would get on with you. Yes, I think. Yeah, yeah. So we we. And he obviously thought, yeah. Well, I'm not sure <laughs> what the fuck I've got myself in here. But he was, he was very, he was a great, he's a great man. And it's, it's not like he was, a, I don't know how to explain it, the father, father figures too. He, he was somebody that you didn't want to disappoint because you knew he'd been in the studio with, you know, John Coltrane, Aretha Franklin. He'd done every Atlantic single from 1945. I think he inv- he put. I don't know if you know what um, uh, the faders in a mixing desk is. Right over there. There's a fader in the mixer. He invented that. This is how he, he, he invented he, the fader. He invented the fader. He was he was a he was a physics genius when he was a kid. <laughs> And he got drafted into working in the Manhattan Project, which was the atomic bomb, when he was 16, because he was so good at physics. <laughs> right? And he, and he said that the, the, the physics, some physics machine involved in the bomb had faders on it. And he was going, because it used to just be dials on old music mixing desks, so you could only do two at a time, but he knew that you could then do ten. So he invented the fader. I think he might have invented three track as well. He's basically he's a a recording f- genius. Yes, and it yes. all stems from the bomb. And it all stems from the bomb. <laughs> and, and, and he told us why he got into music was when he finished the Manhattan Project. He was twenty two or something, and he and he went to get a job doing you know nuclear physics. And they said, "Well, what have you done?" But all that he'd done was classified. So he, so he said, no, he said, oh, you, well, you're, you've only got up to level 16-year-old physics, so you, you'll have to go back and do your school work again. And he goes, I've just been, you know, and so he said, fuck that. <laughs> so he said he, he ended up, he got a job at Atlantic. Because <laughs> he loved music. And it was all because, and thank God that his, his records were classified. So he couldn't, so couldn't say I built an atomic bomb. And That's incredible. Yes. So anyway, you, you, you're working with this guy and you, you just wanted him to go, yeah, man, that's great. You, you just wanted him to approve of what he'd done because he had that authority. And he validated what you were doing. Yeah, and he, and he knew how to handle people because he dealt with all... Very difficult jazz people, very difficult rock and roll. Wilson people. Pickett, Wilson John Coltrane. Coltrane. Well, no, he said Coltrane was beautiful. 
Uh-huh. His head coaching was every bit as nice as Miles could be a bit prickly. Yeah. Yeah, but and I think Ronnie Van Zandt from Leonard Skinner oh, yeah. like party light to fight. So it right. could be, be awkward. But So how did you feel in his presence, you you guys? Were well, you just be, like being his presence because yeah, he obviously had great stories. Yeah, yeah. And he uh, and he he just he could say oh, that this worked for the Skinner. So you weren't going to argue with him or John Coltrane was fine with this. <laughs> <laughs> Aretha Franklin said it was okay, so you'd be like, fine, well, it's fine by me. So you're at Ardent, yes, but you haven't got that many ideas for songs, have you, at the time? No. How? No, no, no we'd, we'd actually done. By the time they came to rehearse in London, we'd we'd stepped up a bit, and I made about five songs. Okay. Six songs. So you go over just there. We can't have this guy coming over and not have yeah. any work done. Yeah. Even at, you know, as at that point, we weren't that stupid. <laughs> we weren't, you know, you don't want to waste these people' time in the the, the rhythm section. Is because I don't know if you know the rhythm section are on, you know, respect yourself and staple singers, and they're on, they're on. So I mean, you can list them better than me. <laughs> God. You probably can. <laughs> they're on everything. All the all the Atlantic artists, all the um, all the stuff that came from that label was absolutely incredible at the time. Yeah, I mean um, Ro- Roger plays drums in the Aretha Franklin records, so that's, that's and, he, and he's on uh, Wilson Pickett, and he, that's one of his first gigs. There's Land of a Thousand Dancing dances, and, and if you hear how. He said he was 18 when he did that, and how funky he is. He was 18? 18 when he did Wilson Pickett. So you're over there, you're in Memphis. Yes. How long were you... I just say the first thing, we're going to Memphis to get away from all our issues in London. Right. (laughs) So we go to the car hire place, and the guy in the car hire place has a High Times cap on (laughs) <laughs> so of course we make inquiries and next thing we've acquired absolutely everything <laughs> so but that's what I mean it follows, it follows us about we don't it, go, we it don't didn't really work it. then leaving no, London no no it didn't even get as far as the car <laughs> <laughs> but such is life so, <laughs> And that was messy. So at that point, Tom had had to have an operation, and I think the the guys from Muscle Shows could see how it was going. Right. So they invited us to Muscle Shows for a week to rehearse. Okay. So I don't know if uh, you've seen the Muscle Shows documentary. Muscle Shows in Alabama. And so we ended up down there for a for a week, and it was just rehearsing. Well, he was quite strict with you as well, wasn't he? It was, it was like he insisted that you all got to the studio at the same time. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but, but he was, wasn't strict so much as you didn't want him... He didn't want you being messy? No, you didn't want to upset him because he had that presence. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. wanted to do it for him. Yeah, you didn't, yeah. Want, you didn't want him looking at you like you're a waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> So you're I mean, a, the, week, the week in Alabama was great as well. It was really, 
Well, what's Muscle Shoals like now? What, what, what was well, it I've like not then? been recently, but that no. was, it, it was quite good the first it's night because we were all long hair and leather trousers and the cops pulled us. Right. right what you, you, you know, it's like proper southern cops with guns. Right. Hey, what are you doing down here? And we're explaining. But then, because it's Muscle Shoals, and the, the big thing that comes from Muscle Shoals is the music, that Roger phoned the pl- head of police and went, Who, why you, what do you think you're doing? These are our guests. Right. And that, that changed. You know, changed Small sound. Yeah, but, it but, but it's, there's one place where musicians probably have the power to phone the police chief and go stop harassing other musicians. Yeah. yeah. But the, the interesting thing about the... Um, we stay in the Holiday Inn in Alabama and you look through and they've got the little things to do, little leaflets, and one of them is the Ku Klux Klan started <laughs> about 20 miles up the road and that was one of the day trips. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it still is one of the day trips, but it was... <laughs> Go, go and see the, the Ku Klux Klan, you're like... It's not Flamingo Land, is it? That, eh? No. For <laughs> <laughs> well, what a day out. <laughs> but, but, but I saw a documentary, and apparently it was five Scottish guys anyway, so I'd, <laughs> I, d- I, d- I don't know if I should be saying much about it. What, but five Scottish guys started the Ku Klux Klan? Five Scottish guys with banjos. It, it was so... I don't know, it was this docu- I don't know, I might, I might be on one of those websites. <laughs> but it, it was uh, five Scottish guys who were a sort of group. Right. That started the Ku Klux Klan, but... You, know, you never it's looked, a banjo outfit. You never looked into your ancestry. No. <laughs> so, uh, you're, you're in Alabama. In you're, Alabama, um, yes. Is that when you first met... Um, Andrew Love, uh, David Woods. No, we met uh, David Hood and Roger Hawkins, the drumming, drummer and bass player, had come across to London to rehearse with us. Okay. So they were all ready. I mean, they just liked it because they couldn't believe he's idiots, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how did you find? Working with people like that, would it? Would it well, I, I, I'm not being so. I personally found it very hard, right? Because I'd never played with a great drummer, and before I played played with one since, but of, and it's very different. It's very very different playing with because I don't know if anyone's been in a band, but you're in a school band and you all sing great you make a racket but then when you're trying to make a record with a really good drummer it's they they stay in time they don't really speed up they don't slow down you get drummers speeding up with the guitarist yeah things like that especially if you're a guitar player you're always pushing it you just mm. want to get to the guitar solo yeah forget all the singing shite and all the bits of it. just want to get to the guitar solo so I'd never played I found it took about a month to really be able to sit in because they're exceptionally good these guys are different you you have quite a big say on the actual sound of Primal, of Primal Scream and I, 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 I sort of see you as a, a musical director of the band yeah. musically yeah. You know, not lyrically it, but no, musically I think a lot it's a, you know basically did, did you work with Tom on the, on the desk no, no, just left him. Just left him, left him to it. Yeah, yeah, left him. 
Oh God, you can tell him. <laughs> well, I was just thinking if you, if like you had to, a, in a modern day equivalent, it's a bit like telling whether all he's he's <laughs> sorted his remix out. You know, you just you, know, you don't you don't you, say no, there, no. There's well, you can have an opinion. Yeah, but you wouldn't go and. I think that would be better. Well, I just thought, wondered if you, you you would like looking over his shoulder, sort of like see what he did, just for, for oh, your no, own. You, listen, you, you sat and listened to him. Yeah. Because again, if you're working with people of that caliber and you don't learn anything, okay. then you're a bit because it's a free it's it's educa- free education. Mm. Yeah, you, you've you've always no. I think you know. You, I think you're a musician, aren't you? And no matter who you're with, learn something. You know. Th- yeah, but just always and ask them how you should do that because most people will go, okay, it's easy, just do this, and always try and learn. Roger was great at that and drums, mm. he, and he he said he had a policy that no matter how bad the drummer was, he wouldn't criticise him. He'd try and find something good in the playing, which he liked about him because he was a big gentle guy and and he's a genius. He's a really, really one of the best drummers, but he always found something good in other people's drumming. Right. So, yeah. And I think that's a good way to go through life as well. Was the recording... I, I'm, I'm, I've been in recording studios myself yeah. and I've, I've seen people record, but I was just wondering, was there any sort of like... There was, was there any tape editing or anything like that? Or was it all mainly live... I live think it's recording. mostly live, right? Yeah. That one. No edits, but just straight down. I don't know down. if they edited the the final the the final quarter inch. They might have done some edits, but Tom, that's why Tom was here because Tom knew a good take. Mm. You know, because he'd been doing it for since nineteen forty-five. How did uh, well? I'm asking you because with no one else to ask. But how was Bobby? Because I'm, I've seen the documentary about the Memphis, uh, the Memphis sessions, and Bobby, Bobby was quite intimidated by the fact because he, he didn't feel that he was in the same calibre as a vocalist of some of the people that Tom had worked with before in the past. How did he get by that? I don't, I don't think that? any of us felt we were in the calibre no. of any of the people. Don't know. <laughs> I mean, you're dealing with the great, you're dealing with, you know, Coltrane and Miles Davis and mm. Aretha Franklin. You're, you're just we guys for Glasgow going, what the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> you know, you know, you have real, you know. This so that's why when Tom went, great. Right. He didn't say much, he just pointed and you go, great. Okay. And you go, oh, I said great. <laughs> and then you'd be happy. And <laughs> I know when, um, when Bobby recorded, uh, when the band recorded Rocks. Yes. Um, he, he, he did two takes, I think, if, if I remember rightly. Rob, Rob Young went up to Bobby and said, he was a bit worried, and he says, take that. <laughs> don't know what it was, what he gave him to take, but... I don't know, yeah. He did, he did the... Um, well, it's probably right. Yeah, it was in the it documentary. It sounds like a throb yeah. move. And, and then we'd be in the, bar next, the tequila bar next door anyway by that point. <laughs> But Bobby, Bobby wanted to do the vocal again, and Tom said no. No, that's, Tom, that's, that's, yeah, that's was, it. You've great. done it. Yeah. Go to bed, Mr. Gillespie. Yeah, no, you see, or, or he'd say, 
put that baby to bed. <laughs> and if you heard that, you were like, yes, we're through. And it was weird because it was so, took so long to do it that me and Duffy ended up working in the 7-Eleven across the road. Really? We, we made friends with the, um, the guy who worked here. He was a really cool guy. I still talk to him. And he was, I don't know if you remember uh, Revenge, which was Peter Hook's yeah. solo band. Right, and we met the only revenge fan in in Memphis. <laughs> right, and it, and he loved Joy Division, and this was the guy who ran the Seven Eleven. Right, so we spent half our time across the road in his shop helping out. But then at one point he left me and Duffy and they're minding the store. Right, <laughs> and he goes, "Yeah, well, the problem is that." Over 80% of stores in America, in Memphis, have an armed robbery. And he goes, here's... And he called him the equaliser. And he had this fucking massive magnum (laughs) under the till. He went, just pull that out and point it, because I generally... And we were going, what the fuck? <laughs> we thought it'd be a joke if we ran the store for an hour. But it was going, well, here's the gun. Nobody gets the money. Is this is this round about the time when you when you visited Graceland's? I think that, the story you're alluding to was the first time. Right. Oh, the, the, when you did the Nick Dixon yes, Arco EP? I think okay. so. I think you were I, a bit poorly that day, weren't you? Very poorly. Yeah. But being well brought up, <laughs> we'd been up all night and wasn't feeling well. And I don't Has anyone been to Graceland's? Right, you go in, you go in the front door and it's the white room. And it's beautiful white carpets and chandeliers and and I was going, Oh god, I'm gonna I'm gonna fucking spew here. <laughs> I'm going and I turned round and started walking towards the door and they came and went, Sir, you cannot go any other way, sir, you must and I, I literally went, pushed past away and went, I'm gonna be <laughs> and I just threw and I've made it to his steps. <laughs> so I threw up in the steps and at which point I get getting huckled out of there and I get to fuck I, I, heard... I was polite I thought I can't fucking puke in Elvis's <laughs> white carpet I heard you held your hand up and went first one since yes. the king <laughs> I might have been in the bar after but <laughs> There was there was a few incidents round about that time as well, well wasn't you there? You can probably tell us. Better they, than um, was it Robert Robert and um, Duffy went to New York for the uh, oh, New Duff- York Music Seminar? No, this was part of the. Is this when Duffy gets shot allegedly? Uh, stabbed, I heard. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he never noticed. <laughs> <laughs> We'd finished the record and Tom went, give us a week to mix it. So me, Bob, Rody, Murray and Henry went to New Orleans, but Throb and Duff went home. And anyway, on their way back, they stopped off in New York and Duffy apparently... Went on a bit of a pub crawl. Went went to a party or something. And then he was sitting in the bar at eight o'clock the next morning and the barman went, your mate's bleeding all over the floor. Which you hadn't noticed, and there's pools and pools of blood. He nearly died, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He had to come back to England. Lot, lot of blood, but he hadn't noticed, and he'd been bleeding all night. <laughs> which. 
Yeah. <coughs> Heady days. <laughs> and then he, somebody said, oh, you might have been shot, but you might have been stabbed. But he didn't know. He didn't. <laughs> and then there, there was a car, it was one of those American... I don't know if it's G.G. Allen, one of those guys who used to swallow broken glass. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he came up to Duff and went, hey, man, how'd you do that? Can you, can you tell me how you get shot without noticing? Because I, I want to put it in my act. G.G. <laughs> Allen. Ooh. Yeah, I think it was him or one of the guys. You know, there was a... There was a Hardcore punk kind there of... There was one of those guys who yeah. ate broken glasses. For, he used to rub... Yeah, shit all shit over all himself, himself whilst yeah. he was yeah shit himself rub it all over himself yeah. you won't want him round for dinner no. <laughs> <laughs> that's what Eggleston said to us <laughs> the first time we met William Eggleston who's photographer who did the, the sleeves he did the dicks the arcosiva sorry about that and we went, he invited us round to dinner and he went you ain't those guys that shit on stage are you <laughs> <laughs> After listening to the record, we had a post-album discussion and a bit of a Q&A. So, you've recorded the album. Right. You've played some of the tracks, I believe, to Alan McGee. Right. At that time. Yes. And He's not, how did it go from there? Well, he wasn't too... But, again, as I said to you earlier... In the bit, we, we get sent away. This is when Duffy gets shot, and we get sent away for a week while Tom Dowd mixed, did these mixes. What you've heard. So, uh, me, Bob, Henry, the bass player, and Murray spent the week in New Orleans, which was really good week in New Orleans. And we came back and we. Would you like to tell us some stories about your time in New Orleans, or would you prefer no, not to? No, I prefer. <laughs> No. Okay. <laughs> Apart from getting ripped off by a really funny drug dealer. Okay. He, he sold us, I think it was mixed herbs and, <laughs> and, and bacon soda on the same night and then came back the next night to sell us more. <laughs> but, uh, he, was, he was funny, he was good. But anyway, we come back and for some we don't like it. What, what you just said we don't like and what, which song was it you know better than me it's a big jet big, big jet, jet plane. plane which tonight sounded you know incredible to me really and we we decided right away to re-record it me and Bob must have decided because Duffy's been shot in New York so he's going home Robert's on his way and we decided to re-record it and that's even within, you know, that, that time frame we decided. So who did you re-record we, we, Jet Plane with? We, we got J- Jim Dickinson, who's a f- legendary American Memphis producer and musician, and we got him to play Wurlitzer on it. And I can't for the life of me... Think I, why? Yeah, not hearing that. But that's, that's the state we were in at the time, I guess, that you thought... Because even tonight, that sounded like one of the better tracks to me. You know, that sounded... You're, I mean, you're in a beautiful. position where you... beautiful. 
you know, you, that, you, so I don't know why we've decided after a week that it's not very good and, and needs, we need to start again. But you're under a lot of pressure to follow up such a huge album with Screamy Delica. The we've listened to this album tonight. I'm, I'm not, which I'm is not a be- sure that that would have got through to us at that point. That was what, sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure that would have got through to us at that point. <laughs> okay. We were just in our own little thing. Bubble. Yeah. Which had moved to Memphis, and we were, and I can't, you know, it's interesting. I don't really, really don't know why we did that. Decided that wasn't. Good. I can understand with some of the other stuff, which we might move on to why. Yeah. What you're saying, McGee didn't like it. Jeff Barrett, who was our, he runs Heavenly Records, but he was our kind of. In our, he was our go-to guy. Was is, is this any good, Jeff? Mm. You'd ask McGee or Barrett if it was any good, because they were, you know, they're they're great people. And you know, and obviously, if you know, Je- Heavenly Records are still putting out great records, and Jeff still were. If I if I've wanted an opinion, I'd still go to Barrett and I'd still go to McGee. You know, so and Barrett, I didn't know Barrett had come to Memphis. So he came to Memphis. Yeah, apparently he told me that. Okay. Right. <laughs> he, he turned up in Memphis and nobody was there. Because <laughs> obviously Duff and Throb were in New York. We were in New Orleans, and Barrett had turned up. And I guess Barrett, you know, and they, they, I don't know. The the consensus of opinion was. And I guess people were really wanting Scream of Delicate too at this point. Because no matter what anybody tells you, they want a repeat of the hit record. Right. Is this at the point when Sony got involved? They never got involved. With the the money? I think they were... I'm not very good with chronology. I think they were getting involved. Right. But they were certainly not having any opinion on the, the content of the music. But there right, was... which, which I always find that, you know, being in our band, that no record company has ever had an opinion on the content of the music right. or one that we'd listen to, unless it's somebody like McGee or Barrett or Joe McEwen from Sire, mm. somebody that you think they know what they're talking about. There's never been the faceless record company executives, you know... Telling you what to do. Yeah, because they wouldn't be just telling me to fuck off. Yeah. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a, but if somebody who you trust, respect. Yeah, and respect and, you know. So, so I guess Barrett must have said something, we must have thought something, but I don't know why we recorded, we recorded Big Jet playing that up. That is, um, it's, um, it's a mystery. So you know, I, I kind of know why we remade Rocks. I do. It's uh, we'll talk about the, the yes. George Draculius um, mixes because I think it was you that was um, quite. Um, well, was, to be fair, McGee wanted George Draculius to do the whole record in the beginning. By the way, George Draculius recorded. Um, he, he produced the Black Crows. Yeah, a great sort of soul so album at the time. He was one of Rick Rubin's engineers and prodigies, 
So I think he'd sat in on all the a lot of the hip hop stuff there. Mm. So he was very much Rick Rubin's, you know, prodigy, and he, again a very talented, talented guy. He was, if if I remember rightly, he wasn't. And and, and again, I'd say this for McGee: he was always ahead of us. He was always very ahead, and even when I first met him when I was fifteen. He'd have Ultravox records, and I was just into the punk, you know, Clash, straightforward ego, you know, oh no, Ultravox. And this is in this year, Ultravox, this is John Fox, Ultravox first album. Mm -hmm. So he was always, always ahead, and very much into being modern, and, you know, and he's got great ears for, obviously, for, you know, new bands. So, so he 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 got in touch with George Aquilius, I presume. No, he he wanted George to do the record before, and we insisted the entire record. Him. Yes. Okay, but they got him into because I think it was because he was a bit reticent about sort of doing it. But is your personal knowledge of the kind of sound that you wanted that he he, he ended up working with you? And he, when you when you played him rocks, he said to you, "He says I can't really improve upon this, but he says what I can do is I can make it sound really stupid." Yes, yes. <laughs> and you told him to go with that. Yeah, well, I, I went over to to do it with him. And George, so, so you worked with George whilst yeah, you were yeah, doing that. Yeah, I did it. Read the, the okay. guitars and. He did the drums and the bass and made it sound like, you know, Slade. <laughs> which which I've, I've got no problem with because I grew up with... Everyone loves Slade. Yeah, everyone mm. loves it. But, been... but it's a great quote as well. I'll, I'll make it more stupid. Well, there the seems to have been two pivotal moments in Primal Screen's career, down to you. I think the first <laughs> one was with, with Andrew Weatherall when he, when he was asked to remix uh, I've Lost... Uh, I'm losing more than I've ever had, and he he, get, he, he brought some mixes to you, and yeah. you turned around and just says, "Just fucking destroy yeah. it." Yeah, and that's what became it was, loaded. It was too nice. Mm. What he did, it was respectful, and he basically turned the bass drum up. And you you did the same thing with George, you know. Well, when no, George, George suggested it do the, the, that, and, and, and you went yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah. And and it turned into this pounding. Like yeah, you say, Slade. Yeah. <laughs> Massive single. Yeah. Huge. Still yeah. to this day. Yeah. Still play it. I think it's the most played song we've got live mm. that we've done. But Ben, we're getting away from Memphis. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, so, so that was the reason to go with Big George was... But then we started... Re- I guess we were trying... And even ourselves, we were trying to do Scream of Delicate too. You know, so we remixed free, and that was bonkers. And then I think, because the one thing I, even I noticed tonight, there's so many slow songs on the record. Right, but it's great, but we were wanting some, you know, obviously something a bit more upbeat, because the crash, I guess we get the acid house crash early. Yeah. There was also, I think, at, 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 <laughs> and, that, at that time as well, I think, as, as far as the British music scene yeah. was concerned, this album came out at a time when sort of Britpop had become really no, popular. It, it, no, it was 94, 93, 94. It was 94. when it came out. 
Oasis were just breaking. So, so you've got a Southern Soul album. Yeah, I think. And, and again, <laughs> one, one of my friends song. goes, maybe it sound, sounds too grown up. No, you mean. Right, yeah. and it is very, it's a very grown up record and maybe, you know, it's, it's better when it's our age. Because yeah. I'm, ser- I'm sitting crying, going, uh, you know, crying myself blind. Yeah. So maybe that wasn't the greatest single to come with in uh, 1994 when everybody's wanting... You know, they're wanting moving up and loaded or whatever. Part two. Yeah, but... But it was a a successful album. Yeah, I think by, by the time it came out, Sony were were involved and they got right behind it mm. you know so it was a pretty successful album and if you hear Jailbird as well I couldn't believe how good that sounded and you know and all the the backing vocals as well and there's another thing about Tom Down that arranged all the he arranged the backing vocals right he was, that was... He's a, you know he's, he's a musical genius he was a fucking physical Genius, he was. So how did how did George Clinton get involved? Well, that was a guy, a, a creation called Chris Abbott, and I don't. And he just went, why don't we get George to? You, I presume, you all know it. George Clinton, yeah. that funkadelic. Yeah. Okay. Why don't we get George to mix it? Right. And we just thought, yeah, I'll try it. Because you didn't actually meet him at the time, did you? No, no, we met him later. Yeah. So no, no Which Denise. is another great thing. We met him. At, uh, it's an MTV thing in New York. Right. I've never met anybody who can sit. And while he's talking to you, he's drawing. He's just his mind's going the whole time, and he's making drawings and writing lyrics and and holding a conversation with you at the same time. <laughs> and you're going, oh, you are in that case. You know, you're you're brilliant. You know, so intelligent and so. Far out and Do you know his work with the parliaments? Eh? Do you know his work yes, with the parliaments? Yes. Well, we borrowed a few the riffs. <laughs> <laughs> Still do it to this day. <laughs> so you've um, you've recorded this album. Yes. You've yes. taken it back to to Alan, and well, no, we tried to change it in Memphis. Right. Gone back and then McGee's gone. Because mm. obviously he wants something that he can sell. And he'd always supported you in the past, hasn't he? With every release. No, that but he's, done. He, he's to be fair to McGee, he's always gone. Mm. The second LP, he goes, I'll put it out, but it's rubbish. <laughs> and as as we all know, the the only person who liked the second LP, and it was only the ballads, was Andrew Weatherall, mm. which is why we met him. Because yeah. he was the only guy in Boys Own magazine that gave it a positive review. So we thought, well, if this DJ guy likes it, we should maybe meet up with him. Yeah. Because Jeff Barrett didn't like our second album, McGee didn't like it. Jeff Barrett was doing the publicity and hated it. <laughs> <laughs> so. We, we've we've reconciled these differences now. Okay. <laughs> Do you still see anything in McGee? Yeah. You still friends? Still seeing some of these out, out in Wales, I believe. 
Nice in London now. Oh, is he? In London? London yeah. Okay. He walks about London and does 20 miles a day. He looks, like, he looks like a marathon runner. He's all skinny and... Shit. Yeah. But he's in fantastic form. I've seen him Cardiff. We're playing Cardiff next week because he's managing the Happy Mondays, so i seen him there. Right. And I think he's managing that, the Happy Mondays now. I think so. He's got a few on the roster. He's yeah. got Lee Mathers from the Lars, I yeah. believe. Yeah. He's got a few. <laughs> yeah. What do you say? He, he tends to look after people that have been sort of, you, you know, Lee Mathers. He, um, who's the who've, other guy? who've left the road of righteousness and maybe returning now. <laughs> <laughs> but have talent. The guy out of Haircut 100. He was on name. Creation. Yeah, 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 he was, he on, was creation. on Creation for a while. Yeah. For a while, he uh, did some stuff. Yeah, the guy from um, Dream Academy, he came out under oh, the wow. name Trash Monk. Oh yes, Andrew. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah, was yeah, his yeah, name? Yeah. Can't remember. He ended up working as, with as Brian said, Wilson uh, and people he, he, like he that. He had Bill Drummond as well, which was as we spoke about earlier. Have, has anybody seen the KLF documentary on yeah. Sky Arts? Uh, I've, I've got to watch it because it's, it's so good. Anyway, so he was up at, I don't know if anybody remember, he did a book called The, the Manual, How to Have a Number One Hit, or, or We'll Give You Your Money Back. <laughs> so I went up to, he was in creation one day, and I went up to him and went, you owe me money. And he was like, drumming, well, what do you mean? He's going, we only got to number 16 with Loaded, because <laughs> we followed your fucking book. <laughs> and we never got to number one. <laughs> He didn't give us a. He just laughed. <laughs> Did he charge you? <laughs> but it's a great. I don't know if it is a great book to read and how to. And it is actually still work. It's just get somebody else to do it. Or get somebody who's good at modern beats. Get them to do it. And so if you, <clears throat> yeah, sorry. After the Memphis sessions, yes. you've worked with George Aculius. You've worked with. Um, George Clinton. Yes. And we they, changed everything. They changed everything. Yeah, I think we're. The, I don't know if we were trying to make Screamadelica too in a way. And you know, because things like we did, the, it was just a jam and became funky jam. And I think there was also an attempt, it was probably by me, to get some more fast songs because mm. there's a lot of ballads on it. Yeah. Which you're fine when you're out age because you can sit and listen to <laughs> endless ballads. But 25 years ago, probably. Yeah, you want somebody to jump A bit more upbeat. Yeah. So we did that, we just changed everything. But some, not for the better, but different. Definitely rocks worked. I even think Jailbird with the hip hop beats on it. Because he did that as well, didn't he, yeah, George yeah, Aculeus? Yeah. yeah. He did a mix of Cry Myself Blind as yeah, well. That's, he? Yeah, that's yeah. good as well. Yeah, yeah so he, he did good work. Yeah. You know, and the album was successful and then I at think the time. He recorded Calling Me with him. Well, if we, if we can just fast forward then, right. 25 years later, you're in the basement of your house. Yes. yes. You're going okay. through a box of tapes I've got, I've, and dats. Oh, it's, um, it's about that big, and it's just full of cassettes and. And I'm very good, I'm not very good with song titles, I'm not very good with 
stuff, but I know what the dart looks like, and I know what the cassette looks like, I'm a weirdo. <laughs> and, I, and I found it, and I just went, I think that's the fucking Dowd. The Dowd mixes? The Dowd mixes. And you just, haven't heard them for 25 years? No, and then I had to send off to Amazon to get a little cassette thing that had a USB, because I thought, well, maybe it'll only play once. Because I thought, well, get it all set up, i will do anything. Got the computer running and hit play and played it in. It was just like, oh, God, this is quite all right. So you, you played it to Bobby? How, how no, then I cut it into little bits, made MP3s, and when look what I found, sent him an email where look what I found on it. Right. And he was like, fucking hell, this is good. And he's good at that stuff. He was straight on to... The lovely lady at Sony deals with us and Camille Asher this. And, and they, were, they were bang up for you for oh releasing yeah, it. Because it, yeah. it's, it's all, that's quite a big thing now, isn't it? Making previously unheard. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, having, having listened to, to this record, do, do you regret not putting it out at the time? Well, because I've not listened to the other record since we put it out. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I, I, I don't know. Because I think Rocks is... Stand by the version of Rocks that came out. I don't know. Because you don't... It's weird you don't sit at home listening to your own records. No, right, you would be very... Weird. <laughs> Odd. Because right, uh, if you get time to listen to records, you listen to other people's records. Yeah, in case you get some ideas. Yeah. <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's really beautiful. Yeah, it's no, really it is. It record. is really beautiful. Sorry. So bad decisions were made by everybody. Everybody makes them. Another classic. The, the, uh, I don't know if there's a song, Sad and Blue, and Throb had gone missing for two days. Right, and he turned up with his newest buddy who happened to play harmonica. Okay. Right, and I think they'd been doing smoking something for about two days and they were fucked. <laughs> and he went, and he went, this guy's got to play in the album. <laughs> right. And is that I, the guy that plays harmonica? Yeah, but the good thing was that Dowd buried it. Right. Right. But... But again, that's another thing about Memphis. Like, even the worst bar band, they're good. Mm. Right, compared to British bar bands, compared to... They can all fucking play. They're all really, really good. Right, but this like guy... Like New Orleans. You got yeah, New yeah, Orleans, yeah, yeah. There's no... You, you can't show your face unless you're really... You're not like a chancellor from Scotland. Or, you know, we're all right, but we're not as good as any dodgy bar band in Memphis they were all brilliant players but anyway he turns up with this guy plays Ace Monica and then when the throb finally arrived Dowd's managed to just keep it down the harmonica right. playing and the throb and if you hear the mix in the record the throb insisted this guy was the loudest <laughs> figure in the record so is, it, is he the guy on, who was playing harmonica on the record? Yeah, but on the give out version, it's just almost lead harmonica. Ah, okay. Because the throb turned up and I want my guy in there. <laughs> and Dowd had managed to keep it suppressed. Yes, he's good. Right. But the guy was still a good harmonica player, but it was just 
some guy with Robin found in a gutter. <laughs> On a couple of tracks, it sounds like there's a 12-string yeah. guitar. Yes. Is, is that what you used? Is... That, again, was a thing Tom Dowd showed us. And I don't know if you're familiar with the guitar, but is there any guitar players... There's no guitar players in the room. There's got to be some guitar, There's got to be some guitar players. Right, but the guitar goes... You have the three thin strings and then you get the three thick strings. And you do this thing, and it's called Nashville tuning, where you do three thin strings and then you do three more thin strings but are the same tuning as they would be, but they're an octave up, if that makes any sense. But it makes the guitar sound kind of like a mandolin and kind of like a 12-string. So Tom Dowd insisted when we were doing acoustic guitar things, there'd be one person in Nashville High, there'd be one person who'd have a capo, he'd play the guitar really high up, and there'd be one person play it really low down, and we'd all strum slightly differently. And I, I, we'd, we'd no idea about this, but he made us, and it just makes for this lush ring because there's all these different guitars, different tunes, different, and it, and that's what it basically sounds like the twelve string. It's three three guitar players, and Dowd insisted on it, and he's. You know, you've got if it's good enough for fucking Eric Clapton, it's good enough for you, lot. <laughs> good enough for Leonard Skinner, it's good enough for you. And you're like, fair enough, Tom. You're a big fan of Leonard Skinner, aren't you? I'm a big you? Leonard Skinner fan. Always have been here. Yeah. Uh, we've got a question from uh, Jason Barnard of um, Strange Brew Podcast and and the Record Collector, the UK's oh. longest-running musical magazine. <laughs> Andrew, the, I mean, the, the songwriting on that record is yeah. just amazing. But you, you mentioned before about when you were sort of jamming in, in, in the night, in oh, the no. dark, in the winter and whatever. Yeah. But you, you didn't cover kind of the moment for the writing of well, this Well, I think that's yeah. another great McGee story because after the Brown House, or the Roundhouse, we, we cleared off to Australia and... We're going, oh, it's all fucking shy, it's all shy. And McGee went, send me the tapes. And he actually went, I think you've got a record called Something to Do With Getting Your Rocks Off. And that again was, and we were a bit, oh, what you've, you know, talking about. So again, that's another great thing about working with McGee, who. He got it. He, he was good at these things. So you know, obviously, because he, he, you know, he's all famous for discovering Oasis, right? But he, he's very, very good at these things. And he's Liam Gallagher. His, his story about the King Tuts when he said he knew he was going to sign him when he saw Liam walk to the stage because he just went, he's a fucking star. Which is right. Mm. You know, the way we, Liam walked from the dressing room in a pub to the stage and he... Didn't they, so McGee's always... Did they hijack that gig? Well, they supposed that they, they turned yeah, up and they, didn't even, it, they weren't even it, playing. Sister Lovers, who's Debbie and... Is it McGee's girlfriend at the time? 
I don't know. I think one of the members was McGee's girlfriend. He he said he just turned up to intimidate her. Eh? He said he turned up to intimidate her. (laughs) But I think it's it's, it's so he he was good at that stuff. I think he knew. I think Debbie told told Uh, him that they were good. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Andrew Innes. (laughs) 